speak for Mike as well as for myself in saying how delighted we are to be here visiting South Africa. We really enjoyed the beauty of the Cape as well as your warmth and hospitality. And we're grateful for the invitation to participate in tonight's important debate. And I want to thank all of the sponsors for the hard work that's gone into preparing for tonight's event. Now the question before us tonight is, how should we understand the narratives about Jesus' resurrection? In answer to that question, Mike and I propose to defend two major contentions in tonight's debate. One, the texts of the New Testament teach that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, historical event. And two, there's no good reason to deny this traditional understanding of the texts. In my opening speech, I want to speak in favor of that first contention, and then I'll pass the ball to Mike to defend the second contention in his opening speech. So, what can be said on behalf of our first contention that the texts of the New Testament teach that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, historical event? Well, a lot. Over the last half century, there's transpired a revolution in historical scholarship concerning the New Testament records of Jesus. What has occurred is what one scholar actually calls the Jewish reclamation of Jesus. Historical scholars have come to appreciate that the proper context for understanding Jesus of Nazareth is not a pagan culture or religion, but first century Palestinian Judaism. Jesus and all of his disciples were Jews, and it's against that background that the Gospels are to be understood. This realization has profound implications for our interpretation of the New Testament texts concerning Jesus' resurrection. Jewish hopes for the resurrection of the dead were, without exception, the belief in a literal, physical resurrection of the body. Hence, Jewish funerary practices included preserving the bones of the deceased in ossuaries, or bone boxes, in hopes of the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world. N.T. Wright, the author of a massive study of resurrection in the ancient world, concludes, there is no evidence for Jews of our period using the word resurrection to denote something essentially non-concrete. Jews believed in a bodily, physical resurrection from the grave. Thus, when the New Testament writers speak of Jesus' resurrection, they intend this resurrection to be taken as a literal, physical event. In the words of the eminent New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, it is not accurate to claim that the New Testament references to the resurrection of Jesus are ambiguous as to whether they mean bodily resurrection. There was no other kind of resurrection. And so we find, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, discoursing at length in answer to the Corinthian question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? The sermons in the book of Acts similarly present Jesus' resurrection as a literal event in history, just like the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, events verified by witnesses. And of course, the whole empty tomb tradition in all four Gospels 
shows clearly that Jesus' resurrection was not thought of as a mere metaphor, but as a literal, physical event. As the late John A.T. Robinson once nicely put it, with respect to Jesus' resurrection, it wasn't just that there was nothing to show for it, rather there literally was nothing to show for it, that is to say, an empty tomb. The Jewish reclamation of Jesus has had the further effect of enhancing the Gospel's historical credibility with respect to the life of Jesus. Jesus is now widely recognized to have carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms as signs of the inauguration of the Kingdom of God into human history in his person. The events of Easter have been no exception to this revolution in scholarship. Back in the 1930s and 40s, the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb was widely dismissed as a late legend and even an embarrassment for the Christian faith. Similarly, uh, the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection was taken to be the result of the disciples' fervent faith in Jesus. This skepticism concerning the events of Easter was a spent force by the late 1960s and then began rapidly to recede. Today, the majority of New Testaments, by far, agree on the following four facts. Number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth was interred in a tomb by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. As John E.T. Robinson states, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Two, Jesus' tomb was then found empty by a group of his women followers on the Sunday morning after the crucifixion. Even so hostile a critic as Bart Ehrman recognizes that we have, in his words, solid traditions, not only for Jesus' burial, but also for the women's discovery of the empty tomb. And therefore, he says, we can conclude with some certainty that Jesus was in fact buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb, and that three days later, the tomb was found empty. Three, various individuals and groups of people on multiple occasions and under different circumstances saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. This fact is universally acknowledged by New Testament scholars. Even the skeptical German New Testament critic Gott Rudemann concludes it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. And finally, number four, the original disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection was not the result of their faith in him or of wishful thinking, but quite the contrary, their faith in him was the result of their having come to believe that he was risen from the dead. N.T. Wright explains, if nothing happened after Jesus' death, then any first century Jew would have said he was another deluded fanatic. That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. The historical foundations of belief in Jesus' resurrection are thus surprisingly well attested and are recognized as such 
by the majority of New Testament scholars today. In fact, Dr. Spangenberg himself, in his article, Jesus and Outstanding, affirms all four of these historical facts. His rejection of Jesus' physical resurrection depends more on his philosophical views about the existence of God than on historical considerations concerning the texts of the New Testament. That leads me then to our second main contention, that there's no good reason to deny this traditional understanding of the New Testament text. I do want to say a couple of words about this contention before passing the ball to Dr. Lacuna. The New Testament texts affirm, as we've seen, that Jesus was raised physically and bodily from the dead. Such an event would literally be a miracle, an event caused by God. And of course, if you don't believe in God, then you're not going to be open to any such miraculous explanation. Both Dr. Spangenberg and Dr. Volmerans have been quite candid about their non-theism. Dr. Spangenberg says, and I quote, to prevent confusion, I do not talk of God with a capital G anymore, but of God lowercase g, or the divine. God, as he is portrayed in the Bible, is only a human construct. I myself choose to think and talk atheistically about God, little g, the divine. Dr. Volmerans likewise repudiates theism in favor of a religion of nature, even rewriting Psalm 23 to read, The earth cares for me like a shepherd. As long as I live, the earth will look after me. Now, obviously, if you don't believe that God exists, then you have to reject the miracles of the New Testament, like the resurrection. As Dr. Spangenberg writes, since God can no longer be conceived in theistic terms, it becomes nonsensical to seek to understand Jesus as the incarnation of the theistic deity. None of us believes that corpses can come alive again and walk about. Now, of course, it's perfectly legitimate for the non-theist to reject the resurrection of Jesus as the best explanation of the evidence. But what is not legitimate is to twist the texts of the New Testament to make them say what you want them to say in order to fit your worldview. If a modernist theologian can no longer believe in the theistic worldview of the New Testament writers, then he should have the honesty to say plainly that Christianity is just false, rather than engage in theological double-talk, claiming to affirm Jesus' resurrection while denying that it really occurred. In any case, why think that theism is no longer a tenable worldview? The death of God theology of the mid-1960s didn't even outlive that decade. Instead, over the last 40 years, there has been a tremendous revival of theism in philosophical circles, so that today many of England and America's finest philosophers at our most prestigious universities are outspoken theists. I'm sure they'd be quite surprised by the announcement that their view is now outmoded and untenable. In summary, then, we've seen that the texts of the New Testament, when interpreted in their proper Jewish setting, 
teach that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, historical event. What we now want to hear from our esteemed colleagues is some good reason to deny this traditional understanding. Should they fear like the woman stay in Jerusalem 
or should they go to Galilee and continue the preaching of the gospel? In the gospel, according to Matthew, only two women went to the grave without any spices. And then, suddenly, we had a life, and the two, protected by gods, Roman gods, there was a violent earthquake. And then, suddenly, uh, they went into the tomb, said nothing, and then went out. And on their way, they had the apparition of Jesus. And he repeats the command that the angel inside the tomb gave, gave him, or gave them, and said, Jesus is on his way to Galilee. The, the gods were frightened, some of them went to the high priest, uh, and uh, delivered the news. And they then fabricated a lot that Jesus' body was stolen. <coughs> Jesus eventually met the disciples uh, on a mountain in Galilee, where he commissioned them to, to, to baptize all the nations and to teach them to observe all that he had commanded. Now, why does Jesus meet them on the mountain? On the mountain? It's not mentioned in the other Gospels. Because Matthew sketched Jesus as the second Moses. And like Moses, Moses died on the mountain, Mount Nebo, so Jesus also, as a second Moses, had to get on the mountain before he saw the ends. And why this emphasis on to teach others to observe what he has taught? Jesus is the second Moses, and therefore he gives the instruction that people should stick to the law of Moses. The Jesus of the Gospel of Matthew never denigrates the law. Now Luke's meaning is nearly as long as John. It has four scenes. The first scene is at the tomb. More than three women went to the tomb with spices. They discovered the tomb is empty. Dumbfounded, they saw two men in dazzling garments. The men reminded the women about the words which Jesus had spoken. They then went to the disciples to break the news. None believed The reader is then introduced to a second scene. Two disciples on their way to Emmaus. They did not recognize Moses when he joined them. However, the reader knows that it is Jesus. Because the narrator informs the reader that Jesus is present. So the reader knows more than the disciples. On the way, Jesus interprets the scriptures to namely that the Messiah had first disciple and then we glorified. Nothing of, of a sacrificial death. It is only after entering the house and having a meal that they recognize Jesus. And then he suddenly disappears. And they immediately make a return journey to uh, Jerusalem. On arriving in Jerusalem, they heard that Jesus had appeared to Peter. The third scene commences with Jesus suddenly standing in the midst. They think it's a ghost, but Jesus invites them to touch him, and he even eats a piece of fish in their presence. Again, he explains the scripture to them, and then emphasizes that repentance 
bringing the forgiveness of the sinner should be preached in his name. Repentance, bringing the forgiveness. The fourth scene is at Bethany, where Jesus finally departs and the group returns to, to Jerusalem. The four scenes can be summarized as in Jerusalem, <coughs> on the way to Emmaus, back to Jerusalem, then to Bethany, and back to Jerusalem. Nothing is mentioned of a rendezvous in Galilee. But, take note, anyone who, who will study this gospel attentively will see that forgiveness plays a prominent role in this gospel. But this is not forgiveness based on a simple sacrificial death on the cross. You will not find it in the Gospel of Luke. Time does not allow me to cover the uh, Gospel of John. But you can just glance at that handout and you will see how he even elaborates on all these stories that has now been told and told. Now, when we come to the uh, grand narrative, theologians of the 4th and 5th century took these gospel narratives as well as what was written in the rest of the New Testament and they turned it into the grand narrative of Christianity. This had the effect that the new Jesus character was created. Jesus Christ of the ecumenical creeds. Listen to the Apostles' Creed and what he claims. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born from the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day to rose again. And you can look at that drawing of the three in the universe. Jesus came from heaven, born on earth, eventually died, went into hell, was raised and went back. He makes a full circle in the three decade universe. And if you don't believe me that Christians believe that Jesus was in hell, there is pictures and you can even read 1 Peter 3 uh, to discover this. The priest of the three decade universe is unequivocal present in these formulations. Jesus came from, from heaven, was born on earth, died on the cross, descended into hell, was raised and ascended back into heaven. Jesus Christ of the Apostles' Creed differs from the Jesus that you will find in the, the Gospels. It's a totally different character. And you can even ask, why is the issue about uh, death in Christianity? It is because it is preached in the Christian Gospel or in, 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 in churches that we die because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. <coughs> And because Adam and Eve died, that is why we all died, and that is why Jesus had to die on the cross, so as to be raised by God, so that we can forever live with Him. There is a discrepancy between Jesus' gospel and the gospel which Christianity proclaims. The church's gospel is a story of fall, engineered by Adam and Eve, redemption wrought by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and future judgment of the entire human race. This is also called the Augustinian paradigm of theology. And as Philip Kennedy from the University of Oxford has said, this paradigm has reached its end. Now when we come to the whole fact of uh, in America, these 
much of which are recently being published. Saving Christianity from Empire. Because the Christianity that we all grew up is the Christianity of the Empire. Christianity uh, that Constantine introduced. Trinity was introduced by uh, uh, Theodosius the Great. It was not part of, the, of, of Jesus' own religion. He was at home in Judaism. He did not believe in the Trinity. He was not part of the Trinity. We will never discuss uh, the study of the three Gospels that Jesus uh, claimed that he was part of the Trinity. Good evening. Thank you, Professor uh, for your comments. I just want to say how happy I am to be here at Tux. I'm a Tucky. I'm proud of it. I graduated Dr. several of the faculty, including two who sat on the, my, uh, the committee for my oral defense. Now, my doctoral studies was, uh, concerned uh, the philosophy of history, historical method, and the resurrection of Jesus. Specifically, uh, I know that about 3,300 academic sources, that's journal articles and books, have been written on the topic of Jesus' resurrection since 1975. Bill Allison, someone of a skeptical New Testament scholar, refers to the topic we're discussing this evening as the prize puzzle of New Testament research. And so this is a really important topic we're discussing this evening, and it has garnered a lot of attention from New Testament scholars. But they, they all disagree so much on this, and I wondered why. And then I wonder how many people who have did a thorough historical investigation on the, on the resurrection of Jesus had actual training in the philosophy of history and historical method. And you go around and you look at the course catalogs in most universities and their bachelor's, master's, and doctoral level courses in the departments of religion, and you add up all the courses offered for the students in the department of religion, uh, or religious studies, in the philosophy of history and historical method. And let me tell you, it's rare as hen's teeth to find them. Which means you get a lot of biblical scholars getting out of school with their doctorates, calling themselves historians of Jesus, and they haven't had the first course on how to do history. So what I wanted to do was to find out how professional historians outside of the community of biblical scholars did their work, and then apply that to the resurrection of Jesus and see how it differed. And it was just amazing. It really was. It was a lot of fun. Um, and so uh, when Dr. Craig asked me to be his debate partner, on the, res on the topic of the resurrection of Jesus. At tops. I can't tell you how thrilled I was. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Craig in his opening statement defended two major contentions. The first is that the text of the New Testament teaches that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, historical event. And number two, there's no good reason to deny this traditional understanding of the texts. Now, I listened very carefully uh, to what Professor Spangenberg just offered. And uh, he didn't dispute any of the four facts that Professor Craig offered. So uh, he didn't uh, dispute Dr. Craig's first major contention that the text of the New Testament teach that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, historical event that wasn't contested at all. So Dr. Craig's first contention stands. The second contention was but by Dr. Craig, there's no good reason to deny this traditional understanding of the text. Now, Professor Spangenberg's first three objections were, 
Number one, the four Gospels, the fourth one teaches forgiveness that plays a large part, and sacrifice was not part of Luke's Gospel. The second one is concerns the Apostles' Creed, and says the teachings, a lot of the teachings in the Apostles' Creed, it differs from what you find in the Gospels. And third, the Trinity was introduced by Theodosius the Great. And I wondered, what's the relevance of any of those to tonight's topic? I might as well just talk about some lectures I had the other evening at the group at the Northwest. It'd be just as relevant. Um, these have nothing whatsoever to do. They're all red herrings. Now, a red herring is a logical fallacy that comes after, uh, is patterned after the sport of fox hunting, in which a dry smoke herring that's red in color is dragged off the path um, and into the woods to draw off the scent of the hounds. In logic, a red herring is an interesting argument, but it's irrelevant. And if you're not careful, it's going to drag you off the path, your attention. I mean, you could be here going, oh, that's really interesting. Wow, well, what about that in the Apostles' Creed? And do the early Gospels, do they teach differently in the New Testament text and with the Apostles' Creed? It's irrelevant. It's an interesting question. It's a different debate. And we've come here this evening to discuss the question, did you, how should we interpret the New Testament text regarding the physical resurrection of Jesus? So I want to ask us to be careful. We can discuss this after the debate if you want. It's a, it's a neat topic. But it's irrelevant for tonight's debate. So don't be a dog and be drawn off into the woods <laughs> on irrelevant uh, topics. Or else you'll give Professor Schwangerberg something to bark about. It seems that Professor Schwangerberg's only objection that he gave this evening was he said, we just can't believe the biblical worldview anymore, that science has overturned this. Gosh, you have like Professor Grayson in his opening statement. You better tell a lot of good scientists about this. For example, George Ellis, who teaches at the University of Cape Town, has been described as knowing more about cosmology than anyone, even Stephen Hawking. Christopher Isham, a quantum cosmologist at the Imperial College of Science and Technology in London, has been called Britain's leading quantum cosmologist. Francisco Ayala, one of the leading evolutionary biologists in the world. Alan Sandage, who is probably the greatest living astronomer. Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project. All these prominent, prestigious scientists have two things in common. Number one, they're theists. In other words, they believe that God exists and acts in our world. Second, they're all Christians. So tell them that, the sci that science has now put to rest the biblical worldview. It seems to me that the only way that Professor Spangenberg can make such an assertion is that he's uh, so caught in with the myopic view of his skeptical subculture that he's unaware of all the other things that are going on in science today. And by the way, this is just world view considerations he's giving. As Dr. Craig said in his opening statement, it has nothing to do with historical considerations. One thing I learned as I was studying the philosophy of history and historical method is that there's no such thing as an unbiased historian. And in my doctoral research, that was the hardest thing for me to overcome. Because I realized that I had a bias. I wanted the resurrection to be true. I wanted to show it through historical research. And historians are very careful about this and saying, listen, even in non-religious matters, you have to do your best to detach yourself 
from your desired outcome while your inquiry proceeds. We're all biased, given our race, gender, ethics, nationality, our religious, political, philosophical convictions, the way we were raised, the academic institutions we attend, the very group of people whose acceptance and respect we desire. There's just no way around this. Everybody is biased. And so we have to take steps in order to bracket our uh, personal worldviews and biases while we're engaged in our historical investigation. And the reason this is important, ladies and gentlemen, is because if Jesus rose from the dead, then I think we're all probably in agreement that God's the best candidate as the cause for Jesus' resurrection, and theism obtains. So, what Professor Spangenberg in his opening statement did was seem to argue backwards in terms of history. I don't believe that God exists, therefore Jesus couldn't be raised from the dead. I suggest that if we're going to look at this as responsible historians, we need to look first at the evidence and neither presuppose God's existence nor a priori excluded, but adopt a position of openness and let the facts speak for themselves. Otherwise, we place ourselves in a dangerous position where we allow ourselves, our historical investigation, to be guided by our worldviews, and bad philosophy corrupts good history. So, in concluding, uh, Dr. Craig's two major contentions, the text of the New Testament teach that Jesus' resurrection was a physical historical event, and two, there's no good reason to deny this traditional understanding of the text. Both stand very strongly because we didn't hear a thing from Professor Spangenberg that should cause us any alarm concerning either of these two contentions. Thank you. Relatives, relatives irrelevant and irresponsible in 
And in short, my answer is not literally. Keeping within the parameters of scientific discourse, that the result of this analysis should be in principle open for dissent, for modification or alteration. And therefore, I'm going to say something about two types of discourse which the Greeks distinguished. They called it mythos and logos. I will then supply a definition of myth, and supply a rationale for why resurrection stories in general may be classified as myths. Finally, I will interpret the appearance of Jesus to Putin as well as such a myth. As a child, I remember one day we had a terrible storm. Scared of the thunder, I asked my grandmother what this noise was. Without blinking an eye, she responded, the voice of God, quoting Psalm 29. Of course, my next question was, what does God say? And she started with a list of social evils. People should stop doing crime. The miniskirts young girls wear is really an abomination. Can you believe it? And children should obey their parents. And so on and so on and so forth. And her view of thunder show all the elements of mythos, which is a story explaining this reality in terms of another supernatural reality. And this gave us some sort of meaning in life, to think that somehow there is justice in God's control of events. And Logos, of course, is the exact, exact opposite. It explains phenomena in terms of this reality. Later I would learn that thunder is caused by lightning which causes air to hit and compress and expand, causing this noise. But personally, I don't think that the one this cause is better than the other. But I do think it's very dangerous to call a mythos a logos. And the history of Christianity is unfortunately filled with this type of reasoning. A myth can therefore be defined as a story created in response to the chaos of our inner or outer worlds by referring it to another ultimate reality. <coughs> In ancient times, myths are solidly grounded in the picture of a world of three stories to which uh, Saki uh, so eloquently referred and which, as far as I'm concerned, is not valid anymore. This three-story world vision. This is not how we view reality. This view of the cosmos itself generated stories and characters. To communicate with divine beings in heaven, we need um, messengers, angels, dreams or divine procedures, and uh, possessed by a divine being, one can also produce ecstatic or inspired speech. Below the earth, we have Hades or Tartarus, where the souls of dead congregate and where sinners are punished. Demons originating from there may possess you, make you sick or tempt you. Heroes in antiquity were special people who were connected to all three realms of the universe. A divine being is his father, an earthly woman his mother. He would do miracles, be killed, go down to Hades, and be resurrected, given a new body. 
similar to that of the stars, and ascend into the third story into heaven. And sometimes myth would have a historical call. When Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44, before our common era, Halley's Comet appeared in the sky. And immediately Caesar Augustus issued a coin with Halley's Comet on it, implying that it's the spirit of Julius Caesar ascending to heaven. And in this way, calling himself the Son of God, creating political propaganda. Myths are also open for addition, rewriting, and reinterpretation, which is to a changing environment and therefore tolerate inconsistencies and contradictions. Myths are contagious and circular. There is, for example, you cannot disagree with it. Should women obey men? Of course. There is a story about it. God created Adam first, and Eve as his helpmate, and therefore women should obey him. I hope you perfectly understand the circularity of the argument. Patriarchal society generates a creation myth which in turn underpins by patriarchal society. But also be argued that Jesus developed into a typical mythological character covering all three stories of the universe. Luke and Matthew supplies Jesus with a miraculous birth, not so Mark and John. He dies violently, just like each and every god forming the core of the social mystery cults. He descends into Hades or Tartarus, Acts 2, Peter 3, 2 Peter 3. He is resurrected, appears to some special followers, leaders in the new cult, and ascends to heaven from which he will return to judge the living and the dead. And Stephen even sees the heaven opening with Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And this is the three-story universe. Of course, from around the second century of a common era, Christians started to claim that what happened to Jesus was historical truth. But what happened to the pagan gods perverted imitation. Exasperated Celsus in the late second century declared, Are our pagan beliefs to be accounted myths and theirs believed? What reasons did the Christians give for the distinctiveness of their own beliefs? In truth, there is nothing at all unusual about what the Christians believe. To which Tertullian responded, They all conspired them to mimic earlier in history, history what would come later. The historical core of the resurrection myth may have been about various researchers like Edmund Peter's vision of Jesus as recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Unfortunately, the list of resurrection appearances here does not appear in the Gospels. It is possible to view the resurrection as a developing story. Randall Hallams argued that on the third day, according to the scriptures, was added on the basis of Hosea 6.12 quoted out of context. The story of Joseph of Arimathea was added later. He was assigned a grave, again according to Randall Hammond's 
with the rich in his death. Quoting Isaiah 59 and 16. And so we can go on and show how the story grows. The early Christians, having been regarded as a group within Judaism, picked up more and more quarrels with the Jews. So Matthew has a new story of Jews putting God at the tomb too and bribing them to say Jesus' body was stolen. Still later, some Christians talk about the resurrection of Jesus as an event where your body rots, but your soul, up, your soul soars upwards. They had to be corrected by betraying the resurrection. They resurrected Jesus as eating, drinking, and denying himself to be touched. The only eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus in the New Testament is Paul himself, describes his Damascus experience in various places but mainly to argue for his apostolic authority as on par with Peter and James and the other apostles. They fought a lot, you see, good church people. And so different communities arise. The scriptures of Jewish Christians, like the Epistle of James, has nothing specifically about the resurrection as well as the Bidak. The Gentile Christians like to view Jesus as having died for their sins, resurrected for the justification and we share this by participating in the Christian mysteries, the sacraments. Let's see what he delivers when we apply to Peter. Gabriel Lillemont argues that Peter's denial of Jesus and his flight away from Jerusalem left him with unresolved issues, unresolved feelings of guilt, unsuccessful mourning. Seeing Jesus resolves his inner conflict and supplies him with a new zest of life. He returns to Jerusalem and becomes one of the pillars of the Jewish community. Maybe there is more to it. The contagious effect of this experience allowed the believers to confront Jesus with Caesar and to establish an alternative community to the empire, which is characterized by love, by empathy, by inclusion, by mercy. I'd like to end my talk by referring to the book poem, which was written by Yehudi Ben Amikai. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mow of plough, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. And with this I conclude confessing my own doubts and uncertainties. Thank you. was a physical, historical event. Now, Dr. Volkmann says that we could interpret this another way, though he's not claiming that we should. But it seems that both of our colleagues have difficulty engaging with the topic this evening. The topic this evening is how should we interpret the texts of the New Testament concerning Jesus' resurrection. And I would certainly admit you could interpret these texts mythologically, but the problem is that if you did so, you would be wrong, because that's not the proper interpretation of the text. Dr. Bulmaranis thinks that the Gospels are examples of mythological writing akin to the stories of Greco-Roman mythology, and therefore to be understood symbolically. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say Dr. Bulmaranis' scholarship here is just hopelessly out of date. He would have us ignore 
over 100 years of historical scholarship with respect to the New Testament and revert to the mythological interpretation of the 19th century. In particular, he would have us completely ignore the Jewish reclamation of Jesus and revert to understanding Jesus against the backdrop of pagan religion. He fails to grasp the Jewishness of Jesus and so seriously distorts the meaning of these very Jewish texts. Not only so, but the fact that the Gospels were written so soon after the events that they record makes them utterly unlike myths, which form over centuries of development. Paul Barnett, who is an Australian historian, sums it up well when he says, the Jewish character of the Gospel message and the radical brevity of the time frame in which it arose are the two torpedoes that sink the mythological reconstruction. More specifically, I think Dr. Volmagans has got the literary genre of the Gospels wrong. C.S. Lewis, a professor of medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge University wrote, I have been reading romances, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. The Gospels are not of the genre of mythology. They are historical records of people who really lived, of events that really occurred, of places that actually existed, that you can read about in the works of historians like Josephus, the Jewish historian. Rather, contemporary scholars have come to recognize that the Gospels belong to the literary genre of ancient biography, akin to the so-called lives of famous people. According to the New Testament scholar Craig Keener, all four Gospels fit the genre of ancient biography, the life of a prominent person. Moreover, he points out, biographies were essentially historical works. He says the fact that the Gospels use recent traditions and that those who can be checked are careful in their use of sources suggests that the Gospels should be placed among the most reliable of ancient biographies. So why does Dr. Volmagans think that the Gospels belong to the genre of myth? Well, the basic reason is his philosophical naturalism, as he says he agrees with Tillich, that God is just the ground of all being, an impersonal absolute. Uh, so anything that relates supernatural events are for him, by definition, mythological. His claim is thus not based upon a careful, comparative, literary analysis of the Gospel text. Rather, his naturalism has led him into a disastrous misunderstanding of the Gospel's literary genre. So I think when we read the Gospels in their Jewish setting, their Jewishness emerges. They are ancient Jewish biographies of this man, Jesus. And as I pointed out, they affirm consistently the honorable burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the very origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. Now, Dr. Volmerak says the burial is not historical. Joseph of Arimathea is a later addition. Let me just quickly list some of the reasons for thinking that this uh, is historical. First, Jesus' burial is multiply attested in independent early sources, like the pre-market passion source, the source behind the Gospel of Matthew, the independent source behind the Gospel of Luke, 1 Corinthians 15, and the tradition that Paul quotes that goes back within five years of the death of Jesus, 
and the sermons in the book of Acts, which record the early apostolic preaching. So, according to Paul Barnett, and I quote, careful comparison of the texts of Mark and John indicate that neither of these Gospels is dependent on the other, and yet they have a number of incidents in common, for example, the burial of Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Indeed, we have about five independent early sources for Joseph. What about the empty tomb? Well, let me again just list some of the grounds for affirming its historicity. Number one, the historicity of the burial story implies the historicity of the empty tomb. If the site of Jesus' grave were known in Jerusalem, the Jew and Christian alike, then a movement founded on belief in the resurrection of the dead man could never have arisen and flourished in Jerusalem in the face of the enemies of, of that movement. They could have simply pointed to the tomb of Jesus, the occupied grave, to snuff Christianity in the bud. Secondly, the empty tomb story is also multiply attested in independent early sources. It's in the pre-Martin Passion source, it's in the sources independently behind Matthew and Luke, it's in the Gospel of John, it's uh, implied by false tradition in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's also referred to in the early apostolic sermons in the book of Acts. Thirdly, the tomb was probably discovered empty by women. In first century Palestinian Jewish society, the testimony of women was regarded as virtually worthless. Women were not credible witnesses. Therefore, any later legendary account would have made male disciples discover the empty tomb, Peter and John. The fact that it is women whose testimony was worthless in that culture, who are the witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb, is best explained by the fact that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb in the gospel, writers faithful to report what for them was a rather embarrassing and awkward fact. So by the criterion of embarrassment, the historicity of the discovery of the empty tomb by women is likely historical. Fourthly, the story is simple and lacks theological embellishment. If you want to see how real legends look, just look at the apocryphal gospel of Peter, a forgery from the second half of the second century after Christ in which Christ comes out of the tomb as a giant whose head reaches above the clouds, supported by two giant angels, followed by a talking cross and heralded by a voice from heaven. By contrast, the Markan narrative is stark in simplicity. For these and many other reasons, the vast majority of New Testament historians have concluded that not only the burial, but also the empty tomb is historical. What authority does Dr. Volmerans offer on behalf of his claim that it is legendary? He appeals to Randall Helms, who is a retired English professor from Arizona State University. Uh, not, I think, a credible source. As for the appearances, these are universally acknowledged by New Testament historians, as well as the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. On all these grounds, and I think we have good reason for thinking that the New Testament texts are reliable in what they teach about the resurrection of Jesus. I normally, when I teach my students, tell them that you will often hear the thing, the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches. The Bible says, the Bible says, put the Bible against your ear, and you will hear that the Bible doesn't teach, the Bible doesn't say. You have to open the Bible and start reading. But as soon as you open the Bible and start reading, there's a lot of things in your head. 
you have been brought up in a certain environment, you have been brought up with a certain number of creeds, and that influences your reading of the Bible. No one reads the Bible neutrally. We are all influenced by our upbringing and our church traditions. And that is what I try to emphasize in my little speech. So, if you want to study the Gospels or the Bible, we cannot say the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches many things if you would like to, uh, to do that. That type of using the Bible was responsible for the support of apartment. You were not brought up in the times when I was a young kid when minister says the Bible teaches apartheid. The Bible did not teach apartheid. Because when people started to read the Bible, they discovered that different Christians read the Bible in a different way. So then you can see that we do not all read the Bible from a neutral viewpoint. We are influenced either by our politics or by our church tradition, but we do not read in a neutral way. Then, what I do in the Trinity? The Trinity is part and parcel of what I call the Augustinian paradigm of Christianity, which was developed in the 4th and 5th century uh, of the Christian era. Jesus never claimed that he is equal to God. Being a Jew, he would never have done that. Because that would be blasphemous. Jesus believed in only one God. When someone came to him and asked him, Good Lord, tell me. He said, No one is good except God. I am an ordinary man. And that is what we as Christians should return to. And there are many Christians stating that we as Christians should return to what the Gospels teaches us about the Gospel. The Gospel that Jesus taught was the Gospel of God's Kingdom. What is God's Kingdom? God's Kingdom is standing over and against the Empire of the Romans. When Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the good news of God's empire, he was telling that if God ruled in Palestine, the world would have looked different than how the Romans were or what they were doing. People were suffering. Why did Jesus heal people? Because people suffered because of the oppression. Jesus said, God's kingdom will be different. And that is what we should return to. To resist the religion of the empire. The Christianity that we were brought up with is the religion of the Roman Empire. In the 4th century, the Roman Empire absurd usurpated the Christian religion and made it into something of itself. And from then on, Christians turned on other Christians who did not believe in the same way that they believed. They turned on women and burned them as witches. They turned on the Muslims. They turned on whoever differed from them. 
Go and read the history of Christianity, and it's a bloody history. That I can tell you. A bloody history which you can just go back to the second world war. What did happen there? Christianity turned its back on the Jews. It turns its back on the Jewish Jesus. That's why Giza Barney, the person with whom I started, he was, his father and mother uh, was Jewish. And they converted to Catholicism. And he eventually decided that he will become a priest. And he nearly died. He lost both his parents. He had to be uh, uh, moved all around so as to escape the death chambers. Then he discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he became one of the most leading Jewish scholars of our time. And he has written numerous books. I would love you to read his book, The Religion of Jesus the Jew. It's not the religion that you were brought, brought up. Jesus acclaimed, acclaimed the gospel of God's kingdom. And resurrection is a way that the early Christians turned the message which the Roman Empire attached to Jesus' cross. On Jesus' cross they said, they hands the king of the Jews. If you try to oppose Rome, you will have it. And afterwards, Christians came to tell the story. Jesus has been vindicated by God. He has been resurrected. That gives us hope. And whether that was physical or body or what it, that gave them courage and they went into the world to do good. Not to kill. Not to turn their backs on people of other color. Not to turn their backs on women. Paul, if you want uh, evidence that Paul is a misogynist, then read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul excludes the women who were present at the grave. There is no mention of women. And he tells of 500 brethren. No woman is mentioned. Where is the woman? Because Paul is not preaching the gospel of Jesus. He has his own gospel. His gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus made it possible for non-Jews to become part of the new Israelites. That's Paul's gospel and that is all. Paul never met Jesus in real life. He never walked with Jesus. He actually did not really know what Jesus preached. Because in Paul's letters he won't hear anything about the kingdom of God. Because Paul was at home in the Roman Empire. He was a Roman citizen. Jesus was never a Roman citizen. He resisted the Roman Empire. And that we should keep in mind. Thank you.
still haven't heard anything from Professor Spangenberg in reference to the resurrection of Jesus and why not to believe the biblical text on that. Um, he opened up by saying, we believe because the environment in which we brought up. I said that in my opening statement. Um, in terms of we all have our horizons, we all have our biases, these lead us in different uh, directions to interpret things the way we interpret. That's why we have to detach ourselves as best as we can from our desired outcome while our investigation proceeds. Professor Spangenberg, all he did was present the genetic fallacy. He said that um, we believe something, uh, this is why we believe something, because we were brought up, but that has nothing to do with the validity of the belief. I could believe something for all the wrong reasons, and yet that still be a correct belief. I could believe that Jesus rose from the dead um, because this is the way I was brought up. But that says nothing about the fact whether Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe it because of the historical evidence pointing that way. Someone else may believe it for a different reason. That doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means they believe it for a different reason. He says the Bible has been used to, mis to uh, misuse to teach apartheid. Um, and uh, we don't read the Bible from a neutral position. But that doesn't prove anything except that we don't read the Bible from a neutral position and some people misinterpret it. But ladies and gentlemen, this is why historical method is so important. We haven't heard any historical method from Professor Spangenberg or Professor Bomerans this evening. We noticed this. Nothing in terms of historical method. Um, or why to reject the resurrection in, uh, in, in specifics. So um, this is why historical method is so important, because it reveals the strengths and weaknesses of a hypothesis. He says Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. Red herring. It's interesting. I could debate that. In fact, I'll stay after if you want, but we can debate it. Um, but it's irrelevant to tonight's debate. Jesus talked. Uh, he says, Jesus taught to resist the Roman Empire, likewise we should resist the empire. Red herring. It's completely irrelevant. You can be correct on that. And it doesn't matter for tonight's debate, which is about the New Testament text. He saw it says, Paul is a misogynist. Red herring. It's an it's important discussion, um, but it's irrelevant for this evening's debate. Uh, Paul has his own gospel. No, I, I really don't think so. I mean, Paul talks in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, how he met with the disciples, uh, the Apostle Peter, in Jerusalem, and the Greek term used there is hysteresi, which strongly suggests that he went up to get a history of Jesus' life and teachings. And then also, um, uh, in the next chapter, chapter 2, he said he went up to Jerusalem again to run the gospel class and to make sure he hadn't been uh, working in vain all those years. He wanted to ensure he was preaching the same thing that they were preaching, and he says, they extended to me the right hand of fellowship. And added nothing to what I said. In other words, they were saying, you got it right, Paul. Good job, brother. Keep up the good work. Um, well, this is just Paul said it. Maybe he's lying. Well, how about Clement and Polycarp? Clement of Rome was probably a disciple of the Apostle Peter. Polycarp was probably a disciple of the Apostle John. They're writing after the death of Paul, so they're not worried about him coming back and, and, and writing against them. So when they write, would it be interesting to see what they say about Paul? If Paul was teaching differently than what Peter and John were teaching, we would expect them to correct and chime Paul in. Instead, we find Clement saying that Paul accurately and reliably taught the message of truth. We find him re, uh, uh, putting, placing Paul on par with his mentor Peter. Polycarp refers to the blessed Paul, quotes from Paul's writings, and refers to them as part of the sacred scriptures. You don't do that if Paul's teaching completely differently and his own gospel apart from what the apostles were teaching. 
Um, I could even give more reasons for this, but that should suffice for now. Um, let's see, you mentioned Gates of Burmish, uh, the Jewish scholar, and what uh, that he wrote on resurrection. I wrote the review of that for uh, Review of Biblical Literature, which is part of the Society of Biblical Literature. You can read the review of that book on bookreviews.org. Just type in my last name, Lacona, uh, or Gates of Burmish. Uh, and that book review will come up. Vermesh approaches that, and, and he has he says there's six different possible uh, scenarios of what could happen. <coughs> but he a priori rules out the resurrection of Jesus because he says you've got to accept it by faith. There's no way to argue for it in terms of evidence. So he never even considers the evidence for it. He just it's end of discussion for Vermesh. That's poor history because now again he's allowing his worldview to guide his historical investigation. You can read more on that in the book review if you like. Now, in my final three minutes, I'd like to just uh, uh, spend a few moments and address the conservative Christians in the audience this evening. Professor Spangenberg and Volmerins are leaders in the group, the New Reformation Movement. We have a similar group in North America called the Jesus Seminar. Now this group, the Jesus Seminar, made a big splash in the popular media in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, but they never really gained any kind of popularity among scholars. In fact, they never got a, a, a following of more than 150 scholars who joined them. And in fact, I debated Stephen Patterson at the Jesus Seminar uh, just a month, uh, a little over a month ago. And he told me that when they voted on these things about this is what all scholars are saying today about the sayings and deeds of Jesus, he said there was rarely more than 30 to 50 people who even participated in those votes. Not a good representation of contemporary scholarship, I'd say. So they never made a big splash amongst the academic community. They were very popular within the media, though, and therefore they were very influential. But by the time we got to the early 2000s, even the secular popular media began to realize that these guys in the Jesus Seminar were on the radical fringe of the theological left and stopped giving them the attention they had for so many years. And today, the Jesus Seminar has just a fraction of the public influence it once had. I believe that the New Reformation movement will probably follow in their paths. So if you're a Christian here this evening, take heart. Hang on to your faith. You can see there's really nothing here that they're offering that should shake a faith in the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. Tonight's debate is important for that very reason, because it gives you a view, it allows you to see both views as presented in their integrity. And when you do, you really see that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors on that side and red herrings, but there's no substance in terms of a substantive argument against the resurrection of Jesus. And these weak arguments must be exposed if the church in South Africa is not to become a theological backwater that's moving in the opposite direction of modern scholarship. And so I encourage you to stay with your faith if you're a Christian. There's no reason to be shaken in your faith, as I hope you see very clearly this evening. But on a more positive note, I do want to thank Professor Spangenberg and Bolmerins for offering these challenges. Because oftentimes the church becomes very lazy in its thinking. And it's just a matter of just believe because this is the way you've been raised. And that becomes dangerous. We need to be academically rigorous. It tells us the scriptures, Jesus told us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our mind is something that's often left um, off, um, out, out of the discussion. 
So um, I hope this has been encouraging you to this evening, and we can see that Dr. Craig's and my two major contentions this evening have withstood, uh, despite the critical scrutiny that has been offered. Thank you. And so we can go on. I would rather try to 
to inventory positive net. James Fowler, uh, James Fowler did a study of how people experience religion. And, he's, and he experienced various stages people go through. The first stage is the literal stage, where you read everything literal and you experience very literal. And then, of course, you come to a stage where things are more universal, more inclusive, more value-driven. And in that sense, the new reformation movement for me has provided me with a home which I can find elsewhere. And of course, numbers are not important. It's the values that carry us. And um, I would like to conclude with a story written by Raymond Carver. He's an atheist, but he said, I believe in the resurrection. And this story is called The Small Good Thing. And I'm retelling it as a parable. For the resurrection is like a mother who went to a baker. She ordered a birthday cake for her son. As was his custom, the baker worked in the night to bake the cake. With his radio bearing country music, he formed it into a spaceship, decorated it with stars, and placed eight candles in the red frosting. Nobody came to collect the cake, for on his way to school, the boy was run over by a car. The parents kept vigil in the hospital. He was in a coma, and they prayed and did not eat. They took turns to go home and freshen up. The first night was the father's turn. The baker was upset about his clients. In the middle of the night, he phoned the customer. There's a cake here that wasn't picked up. The father did not know what it was all about. He slammed the phone down and later told his wife about a weird call he received. The next evening, it was his wife's turn to go home. Again, the phone rang. Is this about my son? Yes, it is. He answered rudely. Have you forgotten about him? Very agitated, he slammed the phone down. She rushed back to hospital, and no one knew who the caller was. The next day, the boy died. Late that night, the phone rang again. Her husband picked it up, but only the sound of country music was heard in the background. The mother now realized it was the baker. Upset and angry, they drove down to the bakery to confront the caller. They said, what sort of person was he? to arrest him in the middle of the night about a birthday cake. And he said, what sort of people were they to order and not pay? What sort of parents would forget their own son's birthday? Did they realize that he worked 16 hours per day? The mother screamed that her son had died. I wanted to kill you, you bastard, she exclaimed. I wanted you dead. Shame on you. And she burst into tears. The baker allowed himself to be crucified by her curses, and he invited them to sit down. He made them some coffee and took a brown loaf from the oven. He broke it, and they could smell the loaf of the coarse grains. For the first time in three days, they ate. They swallowed the dark bread. He said he was sorry, and they told him about how their son had died and how unfair it was. And he told them about the child he never had and his own loneliness and talked on into the early morning the high cast of light in the windows and they did not think of the I thank you.
Tonight was a lot of fun here being at Tux, and uh, the, the people were just wonderful, and it was just so encouraging to see how people just gravitated to the subject and loved the, getting involved in the debate and hearing it discussed. Uh, it was neat to see a packed house here, which I'm guessing you know is close to 500, and then in the amphitheater outside, it was I don't know how many people were there, but when we came in here, there were quite a few already. So it was really neat. Um, I think it, in terms of what Professor Spangenberg and Volmerens um, offered, I think this is just characteristic of a lot of what we're seeing from the um, the radical fringe of the theological left. There's a lot of red herrings. There's a lot of discussion about interesting topics, but they're just red herrings to pull you off the topic at hand. And when you come to something that's so well attested, historically speaking, like the resurrection of Jesus, there really is no good, plausible, naturalistic explanation that can account for it. And so I thought that became abundantly evident this evening, and it was just a lot of fun, a very positive experience. In all candor, I have to say this wasn't a very good debate tonight. I don't think our opponents really showed up. Uh, the first speech by Spangenberg was just one red herring after another, and Dr. Volmerans really wasn't able to support any of the assertions that he offered. So, frankly, I, I, I thought it was a valuable debate in the sense of exposing the superficiality and the, the vacuity of the point of view they were defending. But it wasn't a good debate in the sense of a substantive exchange of arguments because, frankly, there was just so little on the other side.